Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. It is the Advent season, as I mentioned, where we uh, anticipate the coming to earth of God in the person of his Son, uh, Jesus Christ, who did not cease to be God, but became what he was not, fully man, uh, in order to save uh, us from our sins. And we're looking at Luke chapter uh, 19, We'll read verses 1 through 10, focusing on uh, why Jesus came. And uh, this helps uh, us gain perspective on the reason for the season, as it's uh, colloquially said. Uh, And in knowing, understanding the Savior better, you and I are enabled uh, and equipped to glorify and enjoy him more. So with that in mind, let's uh, read beginning in verse 1 of Luke 19. He, that is, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. <coughs> Excuse me. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Excuse me. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. At various places in the Gospel accounts, we have explicit statements, um, either by Jesus or by uh, other authors of Scripture, stating the very specific intended purpose for which Jesus came, such as that which we find here in verse 10. Uh, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, four points uh, this morning. First of all, a contrast between Zacchaeus and others. Secondly, a correction that Jesus provides us. Thirdly, the cause for which Jesus has come. And fourthly, the consequences that ought to flow from that truth. So, uh, first of all, the contrast. Zacchaeus, as you'll note in uh, verse 2, was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, you need to know that at the time of uh, Jesus, tax collectors uh, were often Jewish, as Zacchaeus here uh, was, but they were collecting taxes for the Roman people, right, for the Roman government, and thus, thank you so much, and thus, as such, uh, they were considered to be traitors to the Jewish people. And not only were they considered traitors, but they often uh, collected monies in excess of what was owed. So not only were they considered traitors, they were considered thieves, all right? And look at verse 2. He was a chief tax collector. He was not just your run-of-the-mill ordinary uh, thief and traitor. He was the chief. That is, he was the top of the heap. Or as they would say in Yiddish, he was the gonsamaka of the tax collectors, all right? And yet we read in verse 9, Jesus said to this chief thief and tax collector, 
Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. The first contrast we want to note is a contrast that Luke is drawing uh, here between Zacchaeus, about whom we read in these verses, and the rich young ruler, another rich man, all right, in chapter 18. Look at verse 22. Chapter 18 and verse 22. Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler. We won't read everything there. But when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So in chapter 19, we have a chief thief and tax collector who is rich, contrasted with the rich young ruler um, in chapter 18, whose response to Jesus is the 180-degree opposite of that of Zacchaeus, all right? Um, And then look at verse 27 in chapter 18. Uh, Verse Actually, verse 25, it bears explanation. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in order to understand this rightly, you need to see, all right, that Jesus is not condemning riches, all right? There are many rich people um, in the Bible uh, that are commended and not condemned despite the fact that they were rich. Rather, Uh, What Jesus is referring to here is a Deuteronomic understanding which was prevalent amongst the Jewish people of his day. If you read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter uh, 28, God promised material blessings and prosperity, all right, for obedience. So if you were rich in the mind of a Jew of Jesus' day, you were in thick with God, all right? And Jesus says, no, this is not a matter of tit for tat. This is not a matter of put a quarter in the thing and get this out. That's not how God deals with people. He says, no, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This would have been shocking to the Jewish hearers of Jesus' day because they have been taught through Deuteronomy, Leviticus, other passages, all right, that if you were materially rich and prosperous, then you were fine with God. You must be blessed by God, all right? Jesus says that's not always the case. But look at the response In verse 26, then uh, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, which we think is indicative of his blessing by God, Jesus said what is impossible with men is possible with God. And we see that in the case of Zacchaeus, all right? The point is this, all right, is that God's dealings with people is not on the basis of their obedience, their performance, uh, or their adherence to the law of Moses, all right? Rather, God's dealings with his people are by pure grace, pure grace. And even a rich thief and tax collector like Zacchaeus can be saved because God deals with his people by pure grace. Very important lesson we learn in this first contrast. Secondly, Zacchaeus is contrasted with the people who are hearing Jesus. Look at verse 7 in chapter 19. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, but not Zacchaeus. Verse 8, all right, there's the contrast, all right? And the question here, as we've noted previously, is Jesus is the issue, 
in the New Testament for the Jewish people. Jesus is the issue all throughout history uh, for the Jewish people, certainly down to our day today as well. I used to live in a Jewish community in Brooklyn, all right? There are probably 10 or 12 synagogues within walking distance. Jesus is the issue. And the question here we see is the question which perennially continues to be the question is, who recognizes and welcomes the mission of Jesus? Who recognizes Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of sinners, and who welcomes his mission to come as one who came to seek and to save that which was lost? A couple of passages. Look at Matthew chapter 9, for example. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, right, uh, Matthew Uh, They said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They did not like this, all right? Same thing. They are not welcoming the mission of Jesus. They are not recognizing Jesus for who he is, all right? More about that in the 1130 service. Look at chapter 11 and verse 19, same thing. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In Zacchaeus, we see that indeed Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, despite the fact that he is a thief, despite the fact that he is a tax collector, despite the fact that he is a traitor. Jesus loved him, and salvation is by pure grace. Third contrast. There's a contrast with those who did, uh, excuse me, with those who misunderstood the message of Jesus' kingdom, all right? They recognized Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the anointed king, prophet, priest, and king. They recognize, all right, Jesus and his mission, but they misunderstand the message of the kingdom. Look at chapter 18 uh, in Luke, Luke chapter 18, verse 17, all right? Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. They're misunderstanding the message about the kingdom. Look at verse 24 in chapter 18. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. All right? And also in verse 38 in chapter 18. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David... Son of David, an acknowledgment, all right, of Jesus as the promised and prophesied Messiah. And then look at chapter 19, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They're uh, waving lulav branches. uh, Hoshienu, Hoshienu, Lord save, Lord save. They recognize Jesus. They welcome the mission, but they misunderstand the mission and the message. All right? So Jesus is, uh, Jesus is uh, excuse me, Zacchaeus is contrasted here. They see the kingdom as a political event, not a spiritual one. All right? And like so many religious ideas, it was a half-truth. And a half-truth, when presented as the whole truth, is nothing but an untruth. All right? And therefore, a half-truth is more dangerous than a lie. So Jesus sees a need with this contrast, this misunderstanding, to correct this misunderstanding. Second point. Jesus here is correcting wrong ideas 
of the kingdom. In chapter 18, we are told that God can bring even the wealthy into his kingdom. In chapter 19, it's the same miracle. He actually brings a wealthy man into his kingdom. Salvation has come to your house. So salvation is equivalent to entering the kingdom. Very important. The people had the message backwards. They thought the primary salvation was political. They were going to be freed by the Messiah of Israel from Roman rule and Roman domination and for the domination of external political forces as had been the case for centuries. They didn't see it as a spiritual kingdom. And Zacchaeus is illustrative that it is uh, spiritual To be saved is to be in the kingdom. To be in the kingdom is to be saved, to have one's sins forgiven. What changed first, all right, for Zacchaeus was not uh, human institution and policies, but a human heart. And note, verse 8, look at verse 8 in our text, Luke 19. Lord, uh, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. What's he doing? He's adhering to the law of restitution. The law of restitution said that if you stole from somebody, you had to pay back what you stole plus the equivalent amount of what you stole, double. Zacchaeus, in an expression of deep, profound repentance, says if I've stolen from anybody anything, I'll restore it fourfold, above and beyond what the law requires because I want to honor you, Lord. What's the point? That salvation which Zacchaeus experienced will have repercussions in the society of which he was a part. But that's not where it starts. It starts in the human heart, all right? And his salvation has repercussions there, and that world will begin to change, but it will change because his heart has changed first. And that's why, get this, all right, changed hearts should always result in changed cultures. It's like throwing a stone in a pond. Have you ever done that? Stood on the side of a lake or a pond and thrown a stone and it drops into the water and concentric circles spread outwards from it. That's what salvation is like. It starts in the human heart, but it's not contained there. It's not confined there. It radiates out to affect all your relationships, your social relationships, your business relationships, your family relationships. It affects and impacts everything. And that's why the Son of Man came. Look at our text. He came not to affect political change, although that will happen, but to seek and to save that which was lost. Because it begins first in the human heart. So a correction. Thirdly, let's look specifically at verse 10 and the cause for which Jesus came. It's highlighted and underscored for you, all right, in our text when you look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Check this out. For I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. This was the point of Jesus' mission, all right? He came to seek and to save those like Zacchaeus. He came to seek and to save those that were lost. He came to seek and to save those who in and of themselves were helpless, those who in and of themselves were hopeless, those who in and of themselves were desperately lost. I must come to your house today. It was of absolute necessity that that happened. Jesus sought Zacchaeus. He didn't leave him among the lost, but he saved him. Notice, unasked, Jesus stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, Jesus offers himself as a guest in the house of a sinner. It's the only time in the gospel accounts where Jesus goes to someone's house uninvited. He took the initiative. He took the first step. Unasked, Jesus sends the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit into Zacchaeus and sovereignly places him amongst the children of God. Today, he is a son of Abraham. Jesus takes the initiative. He seeks and saves the lost. It's his calling to do so. There and then the good shepherd found the lost sheep. He came for sinners. He has an infinite readiness to receive and an infinite ability to save sinners. And all in my hearing today, be assured of this, that no matter what your sin, no matter how vile, no matter how foul, no matter how dastardly, no matter how despicable, no matter how rejected by our society that sin may be, you may find comfort, you may find forgiveness, you may find reconciliation in the arms of Jesus Christ because he came to seek and to save the likes of you. The vilest of sinners can find forgiveness in Jesus You can't earn God's favor. Salvation is not a matter of do more, try harder. It's a matter of laying down your arms, acknowledging your sin, and recognizing that you are hopeless and helpless and in need of a Savior. And Jesus came to seek and to save the likes of you. And all here with your consciences constantly afflicted not only by your sin, your failures, your falling, your failings, and your sinfulness. The fact that no matter how hard you try, as the catechism says, it's only a small beginning of obedience in this life. That despite your sin and your sinfulness and your conscience constantly accusing you, and Satan right there to speak in your ears, why would God want to do with the likes of you? Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And it does not depend on a clean conscience. It does not depend on obedience or performance. It depends on his mercy for sinners. If only you will come to him. If only you will turn from sin and trust in him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest, you will find peace for your souls. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Which brings us to the consequences of Jesus coming to seek and to save those that are lost. And the first is for how you view Jesus Christ. How do you view Jesus Christ? It is as a Savior 
more than a judge that Christ desires to be known. Remember the story of Martin Luther? Martin Luther, prior to um, his uh, personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he would read the Bible. He would seek by all means of penitence and penance to beat his body, to confess his sin. He would repent of his repenting, and his confessor in the monastery got sick of him coming to him. And when he would hear about Christ's righteousness, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, he came to hate Jesus because he associated that with Jesus' judge. Jesus demands perfection. He demands righteousness. No matter how hard I try, I can't attain to that righteousness. And he came to think of Jesus as a judge. And truth be known, Luther said, I hated him. Is that you, my friend? Are you trying to gain God's favor? Are you doing more trying harder? Are you having devotions not only in the morning but in the evening so that you may be, look good in God's eyes? Maybe you don't experience what Luther experienced, but how do you view Jesus Christ? It is as a Savior, more than a judge, that Christ desires to be known. Secondly, this has consequences for how the church, how Christians, how you and I ought to view sinners. Look at the text, verse 7, verse 8. When they saw it, remember we drew this contrast with the crowd around? When they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The word there is literally murmured. The only other place it's used is in a very well-known chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and that's Luke 15, in verse 2. You remember Luke 15? Luke 15 is the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But Jesus told those stories, and we'll get to them in, the, in this series on parables soon enough, all right? But in verse 2, Jesus told those stories because the Pharisees saw him associating with sinners and they murmured. You can just hear them, right? You see them? They're over in the corner and there's Jesus with all these foul sinners. And they're murmuring. They're muttering. Doesn't he know what kind of people they are? Doesn't he know how they live? Doesn't he know what they do? Why isn't he paying attention to us? No. How God came to seek and to save the likes of Zacchaeus should transform how you and how I view sinners. If Jesus came to seek and to save the likes of Zacchaeus, then we ought to see them with the eyes and the heart of Jesus. Not murmur, not mutter. These are words that are spoken to loveless Christians. These are words that are spoken to self-righteous 
Christians. These are words that are spoken to heart-hardened Christians who have no concern or care for the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you? Do we? It doesn't mean that you have to be like Catherine and Belinda and Sterling and Fernando out in the park every Saturday. But are you sharing the love of Christ where you live, work, study, and play? Are you letting others know there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins in which guilty sinners can lose all their guilty stains? Do you look upon those with whom you live, work, study, and play as those who if they do not repent, if they do not turn from their sin, if they do not trust in Jesus, will spend an eternity Christless, lost in the horrors of hell? Does it touch your heart? We get so indifferent in the day and age in which we live. I know this because I know my own heart. Keith Green, whom some of you know, said, my heart is cold, my prayers are ice. So you and I who are sinners that need to repent of our lovelessness, our lack of concern, when you look at those with whom you live, work, study, and play, and you look into their eyes, the window of the soul, and you see down into a yearning chasm of emptiness, nothing. Does it make you weep? Do you remember Jesus when he approached Jerusalem and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd? And he saw with his mind's eye, what was going to befall Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Perhaps you know it. 70 A.D. is when the armies of Rome, under the chastising hand of God, marched into Jerusalem to put down the Jewish rebellion and slaughtered the Jewish people. And not one stone was left upon another in the temple. If you go to Jerusalem today and you see Herod's temple, you can see not one stone is left on another. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that the streets ran knee-deep with blood at the slaughter of the Jewish people as God brought his covenant judgment and wrath upon them for their unbelief and disobedience. Finally, despite having sent them prophets for hundreds of years, despite having sent warnings to them, despite beseeching them all day long, I hold up my hands to a stubborn and obstinate people. Oh, that you would turn. Why will you perish? God's patience finally ran out. And Jesus coming into Jerusalem sees it all. And does he say, oh, you're going to get yours? No. Does he say, what's coming is what you deserve? No. 
Luke tells us he wept. He wept at the prospect of judgment coming on them. Can I tell you my own heart is cold at that concept? How little I weep for the lost, amongst whom I live, work, study, and play. But if Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, then surely Christians must do the same. And Messiah's performed fellowship must do the same. There's a consequence here for society as well. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I mentioned earlier that this is the principle of restitution. Chuck Colson, now gone to be with the Lord, a prolific author converted after his conviction for crimes during the Watergate uh, 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 fiasco years ago. If you don't know about that, I'm sorry. You can ask me later. Chuck Colson got into prison ministry, and he actually went to uh, legislature in the state of Texas. And he said, as Texas was dealing with burgeoning jailhouse populations and the cost of incarcerating criminals, he suggested to them, he said, why don't we, uh, why don't we implement the principle of restitution? For those that are guilty of nonviolent crimes like theft, robbery, one thing or the other, is we require them to pay back what they stole and the equivalent of what they stole double again. Legislature of Texas was astounded at this suggestion. They said, this is brilliant. This is, this is amazing. This will save millions of dollars. And it seems to be just. They won't go scot-free. They'll suffer punishment for their crimes. And it will cost them where it hurts the most in their pocketbooks. Where did you get this idea from? Chuck Colson said, the Bible. The Bible teaches restitution. Now, I'm not from Texas. Maybe we can ask my son when he comes, but I don't know whether that was implemented or not. The fact is, they welcomed it as a a great suggestion. My point is this, is that this salvation, which is kingdom, entering the kingdom, ought to have societal consequences. Changed hearts should result in changed cultures. And Wherever there has been revival, if you're a student of revival, you see that cultures, societies are dramatically impacted by the fact that there's been mass conversion. Houses of prostitution close. Bars and drunkards are changed. Men become faithful to their wives over and over and over again. Any student of revival will tell you that this has societal consequences. Now, you say, yeah, but we live in New York City. Look at us. We're a handful of people in this dark, dismal, dastardly town. Can I encourage you? It's always been a minority that has turned the world upside down. Look at Acts chapter, don't look there, but look at Acts 17 later. 
The disciples turned the world upside down, Luke says, simply by preaching and praying. Look, for example, at a negative one, all right? The homosexual lobby, all right? At least in former years, it was probably 1% of the population, maybe two. Let's say even now with all the advances that they've made, let's say it's five, maybe even 10%. They're still a vast minority, and yet they control the halls of legislation across the country. A vast minority. So be encouraged and be faithful because changed hearts should lead to changed cultures. And then lastly, specifically, as we celebrate Christmas, this is an Advent servant after all. Look at verse 6. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. As Christians celebrating Christmas, let us with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength celebrate joyfully. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the mission of Jesus Christ. Help us to share that mission in our hearts and from our hearts. For we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen and amen.